Peter Meredith emerged victorious in a competitive and at times bruising Democratic primary. But in just a few months, he'll face an even bigger challenge, navigating the Missouri General Assembly as a member of the supermajority. The Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Serving as my guest host for this edition is... Dury Buscarin. A health a health reporter uh, with St. Louis Public Radio. Very excited to have you on. Thank you. And we have two guests today. Uh, the first is a state representative-elect. Peter Meredith. And his daughter, Piper. Piper Meredith. The the first time we've ever had a, a baby join us. <laughs> she has a lot to say, too. And and so if you hear baby sounds throughout the podcast, that's why we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make it work because like like the state representative elect I am also a working dad and I respect this situation Thank right you, here. So okay. um you just uh, basically won a democratic primary Correct. in the 80th district that's tantamount to election. What what is the 80th district? So the 80th is uh South St. Louis City. It's the Targrove area is, is the easiest way to describe it. But uh, it's Targrove South, The Hill, Kings Highway Hills, Southwest Gardens, Shaw, and a little bit of a few other neighborhoods. Uh, we've got some Targrove East, Dutchtown, um, Gravoy Park, and some Forest Park Southeast, and that's that's the bulk of it. Derek, didn't you used to live in that neck of the woods, or am I, am I imagining things? I did. I used to live in Shaw. Now I live oh, in, in the Shaw? Grove, um, and I was double-checking. I am, like, just outside your district. Okay. I mean, the <laughs> that was one of the reasons I, I had her on, beyond the fact that she's going to ask really good health care and criminal justice questions Great. but you know sometimes we got it we got to play to the crowd so to speak so to tell us a little bit about yourself you lived in st louis for a long time mm-hmm. you have an interesting background let the people know who peter meredith is. oh geez well uh shaw you mentioned shaw i'm born and raised in shaw so that's that's really the part of the district i know the best that's my home I grew up on 4200 block of russell my whole family still lives there um i lived there my whole life up until a month ago and actually just moved um but I went out to college in D.C. I was actually a musical theater major, um, singing and dancing my way through college. And uh, that, that's sort of what I thought my career path was going to be um, until I spent some time in D.C. And I, I'd always cared about politics, but it was the Bush years. I got riled up and uh, wanted to get involved and change it. Tell us about the moment that you decided to run for office. <laughs> well, uh, believe it or not, it was actually over 10 years ago. It was, it was my senior year of college. Um, and like I said, I was, I was getting politically motivated and interested and didn't want to just be singing. Um, and I told all my friends, I think that I need to go back to St. Louis, go to law school and uh, run for office. And I said 2016 state rep actually was the plan in, in the district that I'm, I'm now in. So um, that decision goes way back. I, you know, of course, it was a roller coaster ride off and on deciding I, my path might change. But um, I ultimately decided to file uh, back in spring of 2015, um, it, it seemed that it was, in fact, the right time to do this, and this was the place to start, and I wanted to get my hands involved in policy. And why start on, I mean, why have state rep be the first office to go for? I mean, why not alderman or something else? So I, I certainly considered alderman quite a bit. Um, uh, truthfully, I, I'm more interested in policy than um, what I think the, the job of alderman tends to entail. Um, 
Alderman, in my experience, has a lot more to do with constituent services, um, especially until the numbers drop in half, at least. Um, and I'm less excited by, by fixing dumpsters and things like that, which is extremely important and probably has more of an impact on the day-to-day -day lives of my neighbors. But I wanted to get into policy. I wanted to, to start writing law. That's why I went to law school. Now, before we get into policy, and that's going to be the most most of what we're going to be talking about today, we do got to dwell in the politics of, of your, your race, which I'm sure you're super excited about. <laughs> um, you ran in a two-person Democratic primary against Ben Murray, Correct. who I, I'd known for a while. He, he's connected with Jake Zimmerman. He's been a political consultant elsewhere. And I talked with both of you extensively um, for a story that I did. And I didn't really get the sense that there were gaping policy differences between you two. I think there was just differences in how you presented yourself as candidates and what your posture would be when you would go into what is likely going to be a Democratic super minority. Is that kind of a fair assessment or am I completely reading that situation? No, I, I think that Ben and I would both actually agree with that. Um, the fact is on, on the way we'd vote would be probably the same on just about every vote in Jeff City. Um, but we ran a campaign that was more on uh, approach. Um, now, honestly, I, I think the, the difference has to do with background. You know, his background's been in politics for the last 10 or 12 years. My background's been in community and in law. And so I've got a bit more of a, a, a community development approach, I think, than um, a political approach. Actually, can we talk about that for a second? Because I read on your website that you're, you call yourself a community lawyer. Sure. And I only know community law based on, like, the European Union. So what is community law? How do you define it? What well, does it entail? Actually, what I mean by community law is more regular people law. It's the, the kind of legal needs that my neighbors have. So early on, I mean, I, I did whatever walked in the door, whether it paid or not. Um, so I spent a lot of time going to municipal courts for people and dealing with uh, traffic stuff. Um, honestly, that, that was a bulk of my, my work early on. A lot of estate planning, wills and trusts, you know, everyone kind of needs to have that in order. Uh, small business work, some real estate disputes, um, regular people law. I didn't get much into family law, I'll say. Um, that's one, one thing that a lot of people deal with that I just, it was too messy for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that's what I mean by community law. Uh, some nonprofits as well, um, some forming of nonprofits and, and consulting there. You did win 60-40, so there's the spoiler alert there. <laughs> I, I would not say it was the most contentious or ugly race I've ever seen because that there have some, been some pretty horrible legislative races that have happened in the last six years. It did get kind of contentious. Some of the supporters of Ben Murray spoke out pretty forcefully against you. What did you kind of what was kind of your takeaway from the campaign and did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Um, what did you yes, how, how would you yes. have how would you have defined everything basically? Um, I, I think you're probably right. Not the most contentious it could have been, but it, it didn't feel that way. Um, it was pretty exhausting. And and it was more contentious than I imagined it would be. You know, early on, Ben and I sat down and had some beers. And, and when I saw how much we agreed, um, I really thought, well, this is going to be a nice, friendly campaign. Uh, we, we joked about, you know, running... Uh, running ads against each other like uh, Ben Murray eats babies and, you know, silly, silly fake attack kind of stuff. I didn't expect there to be so much negativity as there was. Um, seeing things that repeatedly suggested that I was not a real progressive was hard to deal with. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of guilt by association and that kind of stuff. Um, but I, th I think that it was probably good preparation for what a, a tougher fight would be. I mean, I, I can only imagine how ugly it gets against someone where you really have 
differences of opinion and and um, policy. You, you would think so, but right next door to you, there was a three-way race between Fred Wessel, oh, Steve Butts, yeah. and Adam Kustra. Those three had very big policy True. differences between them, but that did not become a contentious race at all. I saw I, no negativity. There was no negativity, even though the stakes were exactly the same as your race. I, that's a whole other story altogether. It's a different <laughs> different district, different people. But now that you've won, now that you've won, and you will, uh, uh, unless there's like a, you know, incredibly well-funded independent candidate that comes about and beats you, which is very, very, very unlikely, what is going to be kind of your posture going into the next year's legislative session? You talked about differences of approach. We want to hear a little bit about that. Well, I think it comes down to uh, right off the bat, I'm trying to find coalitions. That's a word I use throughout the campaign a lot, but I I mean it. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for... Where even in the Republican Party can I find allies on various issues? Um, Medicaid expansion is a big one. You know, I've, I've already sat down with some folks on the other side of the aisle that I didn't dream I would sit down and talk agreement with, and they're ready to move forward on this, even if it's piecemeal. Um, that's what gets me excited, the, the potential of, of actually getting some bills passed. Um, uh, other things like education, you know, I've talked to some some conservatives and some other special interests actually who are interested in finding funds for things like special school district in in St. Louis City. Those are the kinds of things that I don't think are partisan that I think I can uh, jump right into to working on. What are some of the issues that you would say are for you are closest to the center of the aisle? Because you're going in as a super minority. Sure, uh, Medicaid expansion I think is number one there. Uh, it's something that the, the dollars and cents are obvious. Um, and, and in my opinion, the only real opposition to it is political. Um, I think that can be overcome if we approach it in a way that is less political. Um, not, not suggesting that, that folks that have tried already haven't been <laughs> doing that, but I think that the climate is getting to a point where um, more and more Republicans realize that <laughs> sorry, more and more Republicans realize that we need the, the money in this state, that we need the jobs in the state, and that it's it's actually rural districts that are hurting the most by this. So I see that as something that can be very much center of the aisle. There will still be folks that oppose it on the far right because it's Obamacare. Um, but uh, I think we might be able to get the numbers to, to get some things passed. How do you make that not political? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think it's by uh, letting credit fall in places other than myself. Um, is a big part of it. Uh, it's it's trying to find the Republicans that I can sit down with one-on-one and say, how can I help you push this without you facing political co- consequences for doing it? Um, it's treating them as allies and not as enemies. Um, rather than going at it like we're, I'm going to war, I'm going at it like I'm looking for friends. You're, you've had a community law firm for a long time. Um, are you personally affected by this issue? Do you buy your own insurance? I, I do. Now, I wouldn't be affected by Medicaid expansion specifically. Um, uh, I'm I married and my wife has a very good job. But her, her health care was actually a, a more expensive option for us than me getting independent insurance on the marketplace. I was grateful for that coming into existence. Um, so, it, uh, you know, I've benefited tremendously from Obamacare, from the Affordable Care Act. I really hate calling it Obamacare, but you can't help it now. Apparently. I think even Obama calls it Obamacare <laughs> yeah. now, and he's taken the insult into it and made it his own, but own continue. It. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I've got personal experience there with the, the exchange. I think that it was a, a, a good thing. It's not it's not what I would have had in my ideal world, but it was a step in a good direction. It got a lot of people access to health care, people like me. 
in covering this. Sometimes I feel like the partisanship of the ACA has made it really yeah. difficult for them to fix some of the problems because it's not a perfect bill. You're never no. going to have a perfect bill, and it's a huge piece of legislation. But there seems to be so much infighting about the law itself that we haven't really hammered out the details of how to make it work. Yeah, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that's a fair point. I, I'm i not sure I have an answer. Okay. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, that's why I'm going in and trying to be a, a policy-oriented person where I can sit and spend some time. You know, I'm not an expert in, in the Affordable Care Act by any stretch. It's mostly federal. Um, there's not much I can do there. But if there are things that our state can do, like filling some of the gaps with Medicaid expansion, um, I want to get in there and work through the kinks. And maybe that's a good way of phrasing it, actually, for, for some of the folks we're trying to work with that are just opposed to it. Um, it's, it's about this is the law of the land. Now how do we work through it? How do we make it better? Um, rather than just shouting about how it's not what you wanted. Right, Piper? <laughs> yeah, she agrees. She, she agrees. I mean, another thing that you, we talked about w- during our conversation that you are going to be very interested in is criminal justice mm. issues. You are an attorney. I think that was one of the reasons your soon-to-be uh, predecessor, Mike Colonna, endorsed you because he wanted to m- make sure that there was an attorney, another attorney to replace him. How are you going to approach that? Because I think there's still a lot of criminal justice issues that are left undone post-Michael Brown. And I think that's something that you told me you're pretty interested in. Talk, talk about what your approach is going to be and what you want to see done. Yeah, I mean, you say there's a lot left on the table. I think we've hardly started addressing the problems. Um, and they were there long before Michael Brown. It, it, that that was sort of the tipping point, I think, that finally brought mainstream media attention to the subject. Um, may not have even been the perfect example uh, to, to show the problems, but um, it got us there. And I guess if there's an upside to, to an, a, a, an incident like that, it's, it's that we are talking about it now. Um, uh, this has been a passion of mine for a very long time. Um, I'd say that it's one of the reasons I first decided to start getting into politics. Um, especially in St. Louis, when I came home during, during college in the summers and saw my friends that I'd grown up with on my block, um, who were really experiencing a different city than I was. Um, uh, and it seemed to me that the number one reason was skin color. Um, and, and you know, I found myself resolving interactions between police and my neighbors that looked like they never should have happened. And because I was the you know, young white guy that walked up, I was able to calm it and say, yeah, this guy lives here. Um, and they'd say, oh, that's fine. OK, then we'll leave him alone. Um, and then as a lawyer to start seeing from the legal side what it looks like going through court, um, even just on the level of traffic. Um, it's a problem that we have to start addressing because there, there is an inequality. It's, and I think it's a civil rights issue of our time. Um, so I, I want to get in there. I mean, we've got the Ferguson Commission report in front of us with a list of things we can actually do. Um, and I want to start getting to work on it. Um, I think there's some room that for Republicans to get on board with this as well because of the attention that's been on it. Um, five years ago, had you asked me that, I'm not sure I would have thought that. Maybe I would have said the libertarian streak in Missouri would give us some hope. Um, but I think that it's an issue that we can't ignore, and I'm excited. Now, I'm glad that you mentioned your particular neighborhood because it brings a pretty indelible image into my mind. So within a span of about a week of each other in 2014, I saw two very different perceptions of police. I live in St. Louis Hills, which is in the 16th Ward. I love St. Louis Hills, but I'm not naive. It's almost 99% white. And when we had our tree lighting ceremony there, Sam Dotson had a pretty good reception from the people there because I think that there's a different 
you know, relationship between that neighborhood and the police. So Dury and I were at the second or third Ferguson Commission meeting where Sam Dotson was basically screamed at and yelled at. Yeah, I was there as well. Yeah, you were there as well. I understand that maybe some of those people weren't from Shaw, but but I mean, that kind of was that kind of crystallized for me because Shaw is more divorced neighborhood than St. Louis Hills, that the perception of police is a lot different in certain parts of the city. I mean, Dury, you were there. Was that your perception as well? It was very, very tense, for sure. <laughs> so I know you're state legislator, but I know that you're going to be a leader in your community. Like, like how do you how do you kind of rectify those two images? Is it, it's probably going to take years, if not decades, but you know, it, it, it really crystallized things for at least me. To be honest, I, I think that you see both of those images of the police in Shaw itself, um, where you've got folks that see the police solely as an ally, and you see you've got people that see the police solely as a problem. Um, and I don't think either of them are exactly right. Um, and that's the difficulty. It's trying to get people to, to actually listen to each other and hear that there is another side. Um, that particular, that, that experience watching uh, Chief Dotson was, was tough. You know, he said some things that I think exposed sort of the problem. He, at one point, I think that right before the eruption of protests happened and people turned their backs on him, um, he made a comment along the lines of, um, I truly believe that the police are... Um, uh, the vast majority of officers every day are doing the right thing for the right people at the right time. And th- that right there struck me as the right people is what, what set everything off. I mean, uh, to a lot of people, you could have replaced the word right with white. Um, uh, but even aside from, from racial elements of that, um, the idea that there are the people that we are supposed to protect and then there are the bad guys is a mentality that is really causing a division in our communities. Um, if you're looked at as one of the bad guys, it's hard to ever escape that image. Um, and it, it affects everything. It affects your, your economic viability, your educational opportunities. It affects everything. So how do you take this issue to Jefferson City? What's, I mean, what's your pitch? It's a good question. Um, you know, I'll figure it out as I go a little bit. I'm, I'm new to this, too. Um, this is my first time jumping into politics. Um, I'm no expert in how things get done, um, but I'm, I'm looking to find ways. I think that it's going to depend who I'm talking to and, and what they're open to. There are some folks out there, I think, with a libertarian streak who um, it's about uh, changing the way the state interacts with society. Um, there are some other folks with a more Christian bent out there um, where the pitch is going to be more about um, uh, mercy. You know, I'm a Catholic, and it's the year of mercy in the Catholic Church. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, a message that might be able to bring some folks on board and say, maybe we need to look at a more restorative approach to justice. Um, you know, back before the current events, um, restorative justice was really the way that I talked about this. It wasn't criminal justice reform. It was about incorporating a restorative element in our criminal justice system. It's something I spent time studying in law school. Um, and it's something that I think resonates with a lot of people because, hey, if we want to talk safety, um, reducing the recidivism rates of, of offenders is key. I mean, the more we have people coming out of jail or out of prison and going right back um, into the problems that got them there in the first place because they don't have other options, uh, the more we all suffer. And not just those people, but, but those of us who aren't in this system. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's a conversation that can benefit everybody, um, regardless of, of your view of <laughs> punishment, really. In the spirit of, hello, Piper, (laughs) coming here as a working dad. Um, I think that in this state, um, a lot of, you know, the 
pro-choice versus pro-life, I mean, mm-hmm. abortion becomes very politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know where you stand on that issue. Maybe you can talk to us sure. a little bit about it. But also, can you talk to us about, as a super minority, how you address that on a statewide scale? Sure. Um, well, uh, addressing you know reproductive rights on a statewide scale, like you said, we're a super minority. It's going to be a challenge to ever move anything on that front other than just playing a loud defense. But that's one of the reasons I try to redirect to where we can find common ground. I mean, even in, in my community, um, a large part of my base is Catholic, as I said. And I lost a lot of people who said, I can't vote for you because you're, you're pro-abortion, as they put it. I, I don't think any of us are actually pro-abortion. So I try and divert that and say, you know, rather than focusing on, on the issue of criminalizing abortion or making access, uh, restricting access to abortion, can we talk about some of the things that would actually help reduce the abortion rates in Missouri while also treating women as equals and not being men that are saying to women, hey, this situation that I'll never be in, I'm gonna tell you how you have to handle it. Um, And talk about um, equal pay is a good example, Um, but I'd even go to access to contraceptives and Medicaid expansion is a big one to me. Um, Sex education, all of these things that would actually reduce unplanned pregnancies. But then the other side of the equation where you started this is, is when you do have a pregnancy that was unplanned, maybe we can start changing the equation for women so they might be more likely to, to choose to keep the baby or put it up for adoption. Um, if there's a, a equal pay um, is a big one. Women are underpaid compared to their male counterparts. Um, but uh, paid leave is a really big one that we lack. Um, even just a raised minimum wage because a livable wage, if you don't have a livable wage, imagining caring for another, uh, another person in your household is... Uh, an impossibility for many people. Um, until we address those economic issues, um, I, I think it's it's really, we're not gonna move this issue at all. Now I feel like equal pay is often a really nice buzzword and we mm. have like all those commercial, like I don't know, there was a video that came out and it was a joke because the woman makes 76 cents on the dollar and she yeah. like only does 76% of her work or something, <laughs> it's, it's cute. Um, but. It's a really nice buzzword that people like to repeat, but I think that a lot of the wage gap, if you actually look over a timeline of women's careers, it often it often has to do with how much they're working and hours mm-hmm. and the hours that have to drop off for childcare or um, you know not having parental leave or something like that. Um, so can you tell tell me a little bit more about because a lot of these policies that you're suggesting, like childcare subsidies. Um, like parental leave, those aren't necessarily going to be popular <laughs> in, in the legislature that you're going to be going into. How no. do you make that campaign? Well, right now, I, I think you're right. Right now, I don't think that they'll they'll move very likely. I think that over the course of my eight years there, um, it's much more feasible. Um, I think that there's a, a public sentiment that is growing on this subject um, where we want to to be able to have, uh, to support women that choose to, to stay home with their families or, or dads for that matter, as a working dad. Um, you know, it, it'd be nice to see some support there um, to encourage people to spend a little more time with their families and raise families and be more family involved. Uh, for, for family values conservatives, this should be something we can sell. Hey, we're, we're, we're trying to say, keep working and be more involved in your family. This, this is a win-win for, for the values that they preach. Um, uh, it's about framing it that way as opposed to framing it as welfare. Um, but I, like you said, I, I don't think that's going to happen right away. But I do think that, that starting to, to push the conversation and keep awareness on the issue um, as public sentiment is growing on it uh, means that down the road it's a fight we could win. 
I remember we had Jill Shoup on the show, and we talked pretty extensively about a plan that would provide uh, state-paid family leave and required oh, putting, sure, like, yeah. a surcharge, I think, on, on – and I don't know what the surcharge was, but it required, like, I think a I cost. listened to that episode. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you did. And I think that, you know, I think one of the challenges of that is, while it may be the policy and maybe even the proposal might be strong, the fact that Republicans haven't gotten on board with it yet means, means it's, it's not going to pass. DOA. And also just, you know, the pressures of the business community not wanting to pay a cost for something is probably what's driving that opposition. So is it just going to take like Republicans or a major Republican kind of partnering with a Democrat on that issue for something like that to actually occur? Maybe. Um, I actually tend to think that, that you hit it on the head. It's, it's the business interests. It's getting the business interest to push it, and then uh, I think Republicans will follow. Um, and we're seeing that on some other issues like LGBT rights right now, where the, the people that really, really manage to, to shut down SGR 39 and other efforts like that tend to be the good corporate citizens, if you will, or people that, whether their intentions, whatever their intentions are, um, have realized that it's bad business to discriminate, and it's bad for them. And I think the same might be true of some of these issues where um, treating our employees better and, uh, you know, the, the bigger companies that want to treat their employees better but also want to make sure that they've got a level playing field with others when they do it might get on board with policies like this. And if they start pushing them, their lobbyists start pushing them, then we can start getting Republicans on board. You call, on your website, you call jobs the most significant need in mm. Missouri. Um, and you mentioned bringing in startups and attracting jobs, um, sometimes through incentives. Mm. So I guess what would be, say we were taking the stadium vote now, what was your position on that? So my position on the stadium was uh, <laughs> nuanced, and actually I got hit a lot for that fact. Um, uh, ultimately, I think if I'd been on the board, um, and I said this at the time, I, I probably would have voted no. Um, I didn't think the approach to, to the, the situation was was acceptable. I mean, w the public very clearly demanded a, a vote anytime we were going to subsidize a stadium, and uh, the city managed to bypass that vote. Um, yeah, they did it because the, the law was poorly written, but um, the will was clearly expressed. Yeah. Um, the plan itself, I'm not sure, was a bad plan for the city. And, and I wish I'd heard, I'd seen more time spent trying to persuade the public on it rather than just trying to get it through. Um, obviously, in retrospect, it never was going to happen. Uh, the NFL was not in it with us, no. and the Rams were not in it with well, us. Well, I'm glad Dury brought this up because, yes, that's a retrospective yeah. question. But there is a possibility the legislature may have to deal with an incentive plan for the Scott Trade Center. Sure. That is certainly an issue that could be on your plate. Sure. Um, I, I guess I... Okay, I think there were some issues with a lot of things with that football stadium yeah. plan. First of all, it only got used a very small amount of time. You can make an argument the Scott Trade Center is in use a lot more, so maybe a subsidy is possible. But you could also argue that that money could be used for a whole bunch of other things that should be used for. Sure. So when that issue comes up, because it probably will, what's going to be kind of your posture toward that and using economic incentives there? Well, I think with any one of those things, it's a it's a balance. I mean, we've got a lot of factors to weigh. Um, I can't jump in and say any one project is going to be a good one for us to subsidize or a good one to incentivize. Except that's 50-foot statue um, of me in Francis Park made out of gold. I, I can say pretty safely. I, actually, Jason, that'd be kind of cool. That would be very, very arrogant on my part. I, I would go look at it, though. But, but um, continue. Uh, see birds sitting on it and pooping. We're, we're actually trying to build a statue of David Francis there, but, you know, I'm just trying to lighten the situation. <laughs> but, but continue. Um, no, I mean, uh, I spend a lot of time in my 
at the beginning of my legal career and during law school working on tax incentives um, for various projects. And I saw a lot of situations where they were really good things and they were helping developments happen. I saw some where they were not so good. And it's one of the reasons I didn't want to stay there. I didn't want to just be working for clients that I have to do what they think is good. Um, but uh, when looking at a big project like that, they usually need a package from the state and the city. Um, and most of the time, um, well, <laughs> I can't even say that. We have to look at cost benefit, right? It, it's about whether or not it's going to be increasing uh, not just jobs, but economic activity in the area. We have to look at substitution effect and, and what the impact is on what it, it takes from neighboring businesses, um, whether it's actual growth or um, uh, just new competition. Yeah. You know, a lot of times with these tax incentives, especially in a not just St. Louis City, but in this fragmented region, we have you know the next Walmart a mile or two away from another Walmart being subsidized as new jobs supposedly, but we all know it's just taking jobs from the Walmart down the, down the street. Um, Obviously, with these bigger projects, it's even more complicated and harder to identify all of the costs and benefits. But that's that's the work we have to do. And there are some good people out there doing the analysis right now, trying to figure out how best we evaluate those. Going kind of back to your approach to Jefferson City, because I think that's been a recurring theme. I, I think as you kind of mentioned in your campaign, you were kind of hit by quote unquote guilt by association on some instances because you got some endorsements that people mm -hmm. didn't like, whether it be the police officers association or anything else. But is it kind of your mindset that you can't just dismiss some of these stakeholders out of hand and you gotta work with them to get some of these issues done? Or do you think there are some certain times when you run into a stakeholder or an interest group that you just gotta oppose every single time? Sure. Um I really am a believer that I can disagree with a, a group or a person 95% of the time and still try and find a way to work with them on the 5%. Um, that said, I'm sure there are groups that I'm just never going to hit that 5% and it may be a whole lot smaller than that. I don't expect to find much agreement with the NRA. Um, I don't ex expect to find much agreement with uh, um, some some limited government groups that want to just get rid of taxes altogether. I mean. It's gray. <laughs> yeah, I understand. But, but groups like the POA, sure, they're a stakeholder that is going to be a part of any criminal justice reform that comes forward. And if they're not at the table, the people that are actually dealing with, with policing every single day, um, then we're missing an important part of that dialogue. And to just outright reject them and reject their support and say, I'm not willing to work with them until they do X, Y, and Z, I don't think gets us anywhere. Yeah. So in general, yeah, my approach is I'm not going to reject a stakeholder um, who needs to be at the table. I bring this up because some things that people may not understand who don't follow Jefferson City very clear, carefully is stakeholders like the a Police Officers Association, not only for St. Louis, but the state, mm -hmm. weigh very heavily on how legislators vote. Absolutely. Similarly, like prosecutors who may not be popular also weigh heavily on especially Republicans. So getting them on board on some things does seem critical. Obviously, you're not going to agree with them on every, everything, but it is something that I've noticed that you know, maybe get missed from time to time. Yeah. Is there anything like that we are not asking you about that you think is really important? Oh my goodness. Like, is there something you wish people asked you that you never get asked? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> something that that maybe I underestimated even in, in politics that I just think people need to be more aware of is how hard it is on the family members. Um, my wife going through this was just beat up. Um, and it's draining. I mean, I was gone every night. Running for office is a full-time job. Um, and I'm not even to the real work of, of legislating and going to Jeff City all the time. Um, 
I think that, that maybe families need a little more credit uh, for, for what our politicians are doing um, because, man, it's, it's hard on them. Well, it, it, that, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think that one of the barriers for a lot of people running for office, especially, you know, I think we're about the same age. We're in our 30s. We have kids. First of all, we don't want to give up like our, our, our professions because sure. it's a pay cut and it's a big time commitment. But also you're away from your family for long periods of time. So by, by we, I, I'm not saying I'm ever going to run for office, but I'm just talking about <laughs> sure. like more similar archetypes in our state of lives. It, do you think that makes the legislature worse, that you don't have those types of people there? And oftentimes you see very young people with no families, are retired people, are people kind of nearing the end of their careers, are very wealthy people sure. in the legislature. Well, I, I do think it's unfortunate. It's a difficult career to go into for so many reasons. I mean, frankly, I, I think that's even why we don't see candidates that we are super excited about on the presidential level. Um, it's a difficult thing to go in that that is just brutal on a family. It doesn't pay very much compared to private sector work. And, you know, I'm lucky. I'm self-employed, so I have a job that can be uh, somewhat flexible and compatible. But if I were in a more traditional job where I was employed by someone else, it wouldn't be an option for me to do both. So I would be giving it up entirely to go um, run for office. Uh, and and if, I, if you lose, then I, I spent a year on this campaign. Um, having spent a year uh, with time away from my family without making money at all um, is a lot to ask of people that are going to go out and legislate. Um, add, that, add to that term limits so you know at most you can be out there for eight years. Um, and then you have an even tougher, narrower field that you have to run in if you want to go run for the run state for senate, senate for or somewhere else. Um, uh, but at most, you've got 16 years. Then uh, it's hard to make a career out of that. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're drawn people that that are only in very specific circumstances are they able to to go into the field. And it, we're missing out on a, a good chunk of the population that might be great legislators. Yeah, it's something I've noticed for a while. And and by the way, just as a, a slight correction, Jake Hummel will be in the legislature for 18 years because of a quirk in the term limit laws, True. assuming that he stays the whole time. Well, we are going to let you go. We appreciate your time. We'll probably be talking to you again, probably with and or without your, your child. Maybe you can bring your second child next time. <laughs> yeah, she'll be running around the whole place. Um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Dury on Twitter at? Dury B. You can follow the representative on Twitter at? At Peter Fermo. And how do you follow Piper on Twitter? She doesn't have a handle yet. Well, that's probably good. Otherwise, she'd be like a super smart baby. Her daddy's not very good at Twitter yet either. So. Yeah. Well, it's some people like it, some people don't. But I, I think I like it okay. So we'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Awesome. <laughs>